This morning, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 46, like Brian mentioned earlier on. Um, and last week, Shannon shared with us this idea of God as refuge um, from Psalm 16. And uh, he talked about what it means for God as our refuge in time of death or even, even uh, saving us from death. And so he talked about what that uh, looks like for us as believers today. And so I want to, this week, it wasn't planned, but it turns out that I'm talking about a similar uh, theme. And so I want to continue that theme of God as refuge and what that means for us as believers today. And I want to do that uh, from Psalm 46. And so let's, let's read Psalm 46 and we can dive in. So in Psalm 46, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold, the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So before I begin and look at the passage, is it just me or has the world really gone crazy? Right? It, between the news cycle and the t- social media, um, it doesn't look like we're going to make it too much longer. Uh, even though I don't watch TV or have any social media, um, so it's, I think it's pretty bad when you don't have either of those and still can feel the tension. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it's, um, I think we'll be fine, but unfortunately, unfortunately, um, this feeling of restlessness, this tension of something's not right, or this feeling of unsettledness uh, is not new, or uh, it's not unique to our generation, or even our culture. Uh, the psalmist, as you read through Psalm 46, notice that the psalmist himself even before the social media and before the 24 news, hour news cycle, felt that tension of unsettledness, whether it was the uh, enemies uh, around him with the nations or sickness or pestilence, whatever was afflicting him, he sensed this need for a refuge, right? And that's why he spent the, penned this uh, idea in Psalm 46 that we're gonna look at. And um, he, unfortunately, even as believers though, um, a lot of times we need to be reminded uh, that we need a refuge, right? Uh, just as the psalmist who was, um, who was a religious Jew and, uh, and believed in God had to remind himself by penning this passage, uh, reminding himself how God is his refuge and how God was going to battle for him and how God was on, uh, on the lookout for him. So as believers, uh, following the steps of the psalmist, we need to remind ourselves where our refuge is who our refuge is, and what that actually means for us on a day-to-day basis. And the psalmist uh, understood, as we can see in this passage, that Yahweh was his only suitable refuge, and through the psalm, he's hoping that we will see it and internalize that too for ourselves, okay? So let's just dive in and look at what he says here about God, God as our refuge. 
One of the things that you notice when you look at Psalm 46 is how busy God is in the passage, right? If you, uh, just to point out a few things, um, the ESV says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. If you have an NIV translation, it says something uh, along the lines of, God is an ever-present help in time of trouble, right? And you, you um, read through the passage, you see in verse six, he says, he utters his voice, he's commanding, and the earth is melting, he's fighting, the Lord of hosts is with us. Um, in nine, he says, he makes war seas, he breaks the bow, he shatters the sphere, he, he sets things on fire. Um, and he, he's exalting himself among the nations that are warring against him. So we see God actively participating uh, in this passage. And that was, that was um, not new, I would say, but it was something that stood out to me as I read through this passage. Um, by the way, if you're busy, you can appreciate God and his busyness in this passage as you see how, how much he is uh, actively participating in what uh, he calls us as being our refuge. So, uh, when, when I think about God as refuge, I think it's probably closer to what Shannon had mentioned last week about him being an immovable shelter, right? He being, him being the rock that we run to and hide in. And that's, that, that God is that too, but he's not just that. As we can see in this passage, that God is not just an immovable shelter for us to run to, but that he's a picture of refuge that is actively present and actively participating to ensure that uh, he is our refuge and that our safety is secure. Does that make sense? And so um, you notice that God is not just sitting uh, back and just watching us do our own thing and that he will intervene as as necessary. No, he's actively participating in wanting to be our refuge. He's actively actively fighting our battles for us. He's actively uh, going before us to ensure our protection. The second thing you notice here in, in, in Psalm 46 is that um, there's very little that the psalmist asks us what to do, right? What is expected of us in, in Psalm 46? Very little, actually. If you look at, uh, but the only place you can see uh, instruction is in um, verse eight of uh, Psalm 46, and he says, come behold the works of the Lord, right? It's not even an entire verse, it's just part of a verse. It says, hey, come and see what God is doing. And meanwhile, God is busy fighting battles. God is uh, commanding the armies. God is uh, going before us. God is ever present. And he's, he tells us, the psalmist tells us, just, just sit back and watch God. Just sit back and watch what God is up to. And that is uh, an important, um, important uh, point to remember. And if you don't take anything uh, today, this is something that I want to make sure that you understand and you are able to internalize it for your life, that God has fully taken responsibility on securing our safety in all areas of our lives. Let me repeat that, God has fully taken responsibility of securing our safety in all areas of our lives. God is now waiting, like I mentioned, for us to win our battles or to secure our own safety or take care of our own future. He's already uh, gone before us to do that and we're merely just witnessing him doing that for us. And so, uh, the rest of the time together, I just want to look at what the, how the psalmist describes God in action, right? He's just going to brag on God, and so we're just going to do something similar and just look at what God is up to in this passage. He lays out three aspects of God as our refuge in this passage. I mean, those are not the only three, uh, but the idea of refuge is throughout Scripture, and especially throughout the Psalms, but there's three specific things that he mentions here that I want us to look at and take away from this passage. And the first thing 
that I want us to point out is that God is presented as a refuge who's always present and ready to help us in time of need. He's always present and ready to help us in time of need. Any need and any time. Right? When we go to God seeking refuge, whether it's through prayer or scripture reading or through uh, community, God does not have to uh, check his calendar or discuss with anybody or even think about it. Right? He's already said, I'm willing, I'm ever present, I'm ready to help. Right? And so we can go to him with that confidence. We don't have to uh, think about and worry to see if God, is, uh, God will be willing to be our refuge for us. He's willing and ready for that. Um, when you, and that is assuring to me, right? And that is assuring as we think about God as our refuge and doubting is God ever with me through our difficult circumstances. Sometimes when you teach, um, you, you, you try and teach what you're trying to say. And then other times you have to try and specify what you're not trying to say, right? A lot of times you don't have time to do both, so you only do the first part of it. But there are some instances it's worth mentioning what you're not trying to say, and this is one of those instances. Uh, what do I mean when I say God is ever-present and ready to help, right? Uh, don't think a uh, helicopter parent trying to make sure that we never make a mistake or ever get hurt, right? That's, that's probably going to be, be me in a few weeks, but that's a different story. But that's not what God, that's not how God uh, is presented here uh, in this passage. Uh, God is uh, not presented as somebody who is going to prevent us from making mistakes or having a difficult life. That is not what he's trying to, he's promising us from, right? Uh, Psalmist is not telling us that everything is just going to be pain-free and uh, rosy, Right? Uh, if you think about it, implicit in the idea of seeking a refuge is the fact that you will go through difficult circumstances. Right? Just like if you, when your body is sick, you need medicine. If your body is whole and healthy, you don't need medicine. So when God says, I am your refuge, he expects you that you will have difficult circumstances, that trials and tribulations will come, that you will have uh, things that you can't handle on your own. And he is, uh, he's presenting himself as a strong refuge for that. And so um, being the individualistic culture that we are, um, we, we face a temptation when we are in those hard moments to seek refuge in other things or ourselves, right? Whether it's in family, whether it's in our job, whether it's in our ability to, ability to get things done or our ability to hard work or our wealth, whatever the case may be, the temptation oftentimes uh, is that we run to these little G gods for our, in our t- time of deepest need, Right, instead of running to God. And the psalmist is reminding us that when you find yourself in those moments, remember that God is ever-present and God is ready to help and you don't have to run to these temporal things for refuge. Because at the end of the day, when you think about it, and if you've lived any long, or any long you know this to be true, that people and things will fail us. And at the end of the day, God is, is the only true refuge for us in this, from this passage. And so the, I do want to address the idea that, you know, running to an invisible God is not, um, you know, it's understandably foreign to us, right? We're people, we, we like to see, touch, feel, talk to things, right? And when we, because we can't see God directly, oftentimes it's hard uh, for us to run to God in time of need or approach him as our first source of refuge uh, in time of need. And that is why I think the psalmist has to remind himself and also reminding us that he is available and ready. Uh, When you look at, um, 
I, I think the best uh, analogy that I can think of this is when you when you have if you have kids, right? Um, you know, if if you have, if there's a kid running around um, and you know he. He gets he's friendly with he or she is friendly with everybody and gets along with everybody. But then there's a need. He needs to go to the bathroom or she needs food, right? Who do they go to? They go to one specific parent or one specific person, right? That not everybody is. Uh, they don't trust everybody to do that for them, right? That is oftentimes a good picture of how we respond in time of need. We are we are like little children and we run to things that we trust in. And oftentimes, as believers, who we run to in time of need is a revelation of who we trust. Who we run to in time of need is a revelation of who we trust. It reveals who our real God is. It's not the God that we profess, but, who the, but the God that we run to in time of our deepest need. Um, how do we go to God in time of need? He's present, he's ready to help. How do we go to him? I mentioned here uh, a few weeks ago when I preached about prayer being, an, uh, being a great option and I really don't have anything new other than repeating that specific, uh, specific way of approaching God. Uh, I mentioned seeing prayer not as uh, a first option or a last option but focus, uh, seeing it as the main option, right? And one of the tests that we can ask ourselves or good tests to see if God is your refuge is to see how quickly do you run to prayer when you are facing a difficult circumstance? How often do you go to prayer? Is, is calling mom or dad or parents or friends or even Shannon the first option that we do? Or is it running to prayer or digging into scripture our first option? And that is uh, something that I want to uh, leave as a practical uh, way for us to approach God and to, and to go to him in time of need because he's ever present and ready to help us. I want to look at a story uh, in, uh, from the book of Isaiah, um, the story of Hezekiah to emphasize this point. So we read the story of uh, King Hezekiah who was a king of, of Judah or Israel at the time. Um, yeah, and he, he, was, he was a king and he was being attacked by the Syrian king. Read the story in Isaiah 37 if you, if you want to turn to it. I'm just going to jump around a little bit so you can feel free to just listen. Um, at, the Assyrian king Sennacherib was uh, attacking on all sides of, the, of Jerusalem and Judah. He was capturing nations left and right. He, he, he basically uh, went to nations and said, submit to me, give me a gift and I will leave you alone and he would get the gift and still destroy the nation. And basically, he was a ruthless king that was just uh, invading left and right. And so as he got to, uh, closer to Jerusalem, uh, King Hezekiah, who was the king uh, at the time in Israel, stood no chance to defeat the king, right? All the nations around him had been defeated. And so he, uh, we read the story of uh, how Hezekiah handled that uh, time in his life and how he handled the specific pivotal point in, in, the, in the life of Israel uh, as, as a reflection, as a story for us to look at and remember. And so in, verse, in chapter 36, verses 14 through 16, Sennacherib, who's the king of Assyria, his messenger comes to Jerusalem and gives them this message. Thus says the king, talking about the king of Assyria, saying, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out with me. 
And so here's um, uh, King, uh, uh, king uh, Sennacherib sending a messenger to the, king, uh, to the uh, people in Jerusalem and saying, don't listen to your king. He will tell you God will rescue you and this and that and the other, but no God has been able to rescue anybody really from the king of Assyria. So just come out, give me your gifts, and give me your wealth, and come serve me. He repeats the warning, uh, the messenger does, repeats the warning in verse 18. He says, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? He's basically saying, taunting them, no God has ever rescued any of their nations. Will your God now be special? That's the taunt that um, uh, the messenger brings from the king of Assyria. Assyria. And so King uh, Hezekiah, we read his uh, plea and his plight in Isaiah chapter 37 and verse one. It says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Basically, it's a sign of mourning and saying, we're pretty much done. So he wanted to go, uh, he went into the temple of God to seek God. And so in the meantime, he also sends messengers to, uh, to the prophet Isaiah, who was the prophet, uh, God's prophet at the time uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and um, basically uh, asks Isaiah for counsel on what he needs to do. Ask him to seek God for the kingdom of Israel. And so uh, Isaiah says, Hezekiah, seek God. God will rescue you. He, he will not put you to shame. And so Hezekiah, when he receives the message, goes to the temple and prays. And the prayer of Hezekiah is an interesting passage that I want to briefly look at before we uh, skip to what, how God, how the story ends. But uh, Hezekiah basically just prays uh, in Isaiah chapter 37, towards the end of uh, Isaiah 37. He says, um, he says, God, the surrounding nations have given up. They have been invaded. We ourselves are not a strong nation. We can't, we've been besieged, we've been surrounded, we've been invaded from every side. We can't stand to King, uh, King Sennacherib. And he says, he, he basically expresses his desire that I know that you are the one true God. The gods of the nations, they were built by man. They were made out of wood or gold. But you are the eternal God. Can you reveal yourself as the eternal God by rescuing uh, Jerusalem from uh, King, from the Syrian king, King Sennacherib? And so we pick up the passage and the end of the story uh, and how God responds in Isaiah 37 uh, in verse 33. And this is what God says. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Azariah. He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. In verse 36, we read the end of that story. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, there were dead bodies. These were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Cherazar, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, and his son, reigned in his place. And so you see how uh, God, Hezekiah, uh, facing insurmountable odds, going to God in prayer and saying, we have no options. You are our only option and we need you to come through and we see God showing up and destroying the Assyrian army just like Isaiah prophesied uh, even without an arrow being shot or without a spear being um, handled 
right? Without a fight, the king, um, God destroyed the king and his armies and they fled, uh, fled Jerusalem. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a reminder for us, and I just wanted to say that story, and there's plenty of stories like this through scripture, but the story specifically reminds us of how when we are facing insurmountable odds in our own lives, how we can approach God in prayer and look to him for our refuge. So let me ask you today, what do you need to bring to God this morning in prayer? What are the insurmountable odds that you are facing? Is it, is it a sickness? Is it a family member? Is it a financial need, a spiritual need, emotional healing? Is it a physical need? Bring it to God in prayer because God is able and willing to, uh, and is waiting for you to run to him as his refuge. So that's the first aspect of God as our refuge. He's ever present and he's willing to help us. Secondly, the psalmist shows us uh, that God is our refuge by nurturing and sustaining us. God nurtures and sustains us. Again, that is a very different concept of a refuge uh, that, than we normally see, right? We think of refuge as protection, so the first point makes sense. God is our protection, he fights for us. But God is also our refuge because he sustains and nurtures us. And that's what the psalmist talks about in verses two through six. Now, I wanna pay, want you to pay attention to the imagery that the psalmist uses in the next few verses, right? He begins outside the city of God, he pants, to the city of God and then he pans out of the city of God. And so I want us to keep track of the imagery just to make the point. So in verse two he says, therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its rivers roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So you see mountains moving, earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, that's what's happening around. Right, that's, what's, that's the chaos that we see around. What do we see in verse four? He goes on to, he pans into the city of God and in this city, he says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved, and God will help her when morning dawns. Right? And that, so that's the city of God. And then he pans out back into the chaotic world. And he's in verse six, we read, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. I go back into the chaos of the world. And so I want us to paint this picture um, a little bit before we, uh, before we go in. Uh, we, we, it's important to catch the difference, right? On one hand, what's happening? It's chaos, it's uh, unsettledness, it's restlessness, it's um, just confusion all around. But then we see the city of God just in the middle of this passage as portrayed as what? As a peaceful as a calm, as a nurturing, as a nourishing place where we can go and find peace and refuge, right? Um, Shannon Mench talked about the city of God, briefly mentioned it last week, and I want us to look a little bit more detail into it uh, today. Um, we find this, uh, this city of God reference in multiple places throughout scripture, but one of the places that we see um, is in um, Revelation 21. So. Let's, you don't have to flip, I'll read through the passage and it'll be on the screen because I think it helps us kind of capture what God is trying to say here. In Revelation 21, John writes about what the angel is showing him in the city of God. Right? In, verse, in verses 10, uh, in 21 of Revelation, verses 10 through 14, he says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem. This is the city of God that the psalmist is refer referring to. Coming down out of heaven from God, Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as a crystal. 
It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So basically, in, in, in the rest of chapter 21, I, don't, I didn't have time to read all of it, but in the rest of chapter 21, he goes on to explain how awesome the city is, how glorious it is. It's shining, its streets are gold, it's clear, right? There is no need for sun because it is so bright. There is no night, there is no temple because God is in the midst of it. It's an amazing picture of uh, what God, uh, John is uh, witnessing and he records this in Revelation 21. But I want us to... Um, go a little more deeper into in chapter 22 and verse 1 um, because in 22 and 1 we see this river that we, t- we saw in Psalm 46 right? and in, in the 22 and John records in Revelation 22 and 1 then the angels showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So what are the, what are the things that we see here uh, from this passage? We see a river of life, right? It's steaming with life. It's nurturing the city. It's bringing peace and comfort and calm to the city that it's flowing through. It gives nourishment to the trees that are growing on its banks. And the trees are so nourished that it continues to produce fruit every month, it says. Right? Very different from, very different picture from the uh, from the passage that we read in Psalm 46 where there's chaos all around. In the city, there is calm and peace and quiet and refuge and nourishment and sustenance. I want us to uh, switch from the river to the tree that uh, Revelation is talking about. This tree actually appears back in the book of Psalm that I want to jump to. And sorry if, you're, if, you, um, if, you, if you've been lost, but uh, hopefully I can uh, get you here. In Psalm, uh, Psalm 1, we, we see this tree show up uh, specifically uh, in verse three of Psalm one. And let me read that passage. So this tree, by the way, is, is something that's producing fruit. It's nurtured, it's nourishing, it's a healthy tree. It's the kind of tree you want in your backyard, right? It's basically producing fruit every month of the year. But in, in Psalm one and chapter, th- uh, excuse me, Psalm one and verse three, he says, the psalmist wrote, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Uh, Steve taught us from this passage a few months ago, and he mentioned that he, the he that is referred to here is a spiritual believer or a mature Christian um, that we read about here. And we we see that in verse two. When When you go to verse two, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so we, uh, when you, if, you cro- if you have a cross-reference on your Bible, you can actually see that verse three actually refers back to Psalm 46 and verse four, um, referring this tree and this uh, stream of water to the psalmist's later passage in 46 that we read. But basically what this tree represents is the believer in Christ, right? How do we find refuge in Christ in a daily basis? It's in our, what I would call sometimes chaotic, busy, crazy lives, Well, we do that by what the psalmist does here. We do it by dwelling in God's word and striving to be obedient to it. That's what we read, right, in verse two. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. 
the tree is being nourished by this river and we read that the tree is us as believers and this river is like the, uh, the word of God. And the way we find refuge and sustenance in God is to be obedient to his word. And now that is a foreign concept to us uh, in the culture that we live in, right? Uh, I don't know about you, I'm co- I constantly find myself being asked to reconsider what God has to say on certain topics. Don't you, right? Whether it's marriage, whether it's sex, whether it's your, your um, um, children, how you raise your children, your money, your time, all of it has been, uh, you've been asked to reconsider because uh, the word of God, it's been written long time ago. It needs to be updated, it's outdated, it's old school, it's not, it's not relevant to us this, uh, at this time. So this, uh, this idea that, God, how, that we can actually find sustenance in this sounds foreign to us even for us as believers, but this is not, that is not the picture that the psalmist paints us. Um, even though the culture refers to God's word as outdated, irrelevant, restrictive, and pointless, the psalmist says that the word of God is nourishing and nurturing and helps you become the kind of person that Christ called you to be. And uh, we, if you, if you were to turn on any other source, whether it's the TV or social media, whatever the case may be, we're enc- encouraged to be more materialistic than spiritual, right? We, uh, we're pressured to uh, want to keep up with the Kardashians instead of keeping up with Jesus, right? We're, we're uh, encouraged to keep up with the Real Housewives of Dallas, which I didn't know actually existed, I had to look it up, <laughs> as opposed to keeping up with more of Jesus, right? We're more focused or more bombarded with more of house renovations than soul renovation. Right, and I think a lot of the time, um, as I was reading this passage, I was like, hashtag the struggle is real, right? The, uh, the, a lot of times we, we are constantly told the word, word, God, God's word is not relevant, it's too boring, it's too restrictive, it's pointless. And but brothers and sisters, what, what the psalmist reminds us is that the word of God actually nourishes it as our souls. That the ob- obedience to God's word, it's actually something that helps us grow and become the kind of people that God wants us to be. You know, we ask ourselves these questions, right? Uh, why does God want me to give more of my time and more of my money, right? Why do I have to serve others? Why sacrifice? Or why wait till marriage to have sex? Why submission? Why death to self? I know there was a time in my life that I thought sin was basically all the good things that God didn't want me to have. I'm not sure where you are with that, but if that's where you think, the psalmist paints a completely different picture for us. Right? Uh, the, the word of God does not need to be tailored for our lifestyles. Our lifestyles need to be tailored to, go- to the gospel. Because what we find out over the long haul is that God's word is not restrictive, but that it is a source of refuge. It is a source of nourishment. It's a refuge not only from other people and the culture around us, but it's a refuge from the whims and evil desires of our own lives. It's a refuge from the prevailing ideas of right and wrong, which might be wrong and right tomorrow. That is where, why we find refuge and nourishment and sustenance in God, who, and, and because, because of that, he is a perfect refuge that we can run into. Lastly, God is our refuge because he heals the brokenness of our sins. I'm running out of time, so I'll, I'll quickly uh, go through this part. So the first part was God is our refuge because he's ever-present and he's ready to help. The second is because he's our sustenance and he, he nourishes our soul. The third is God is our refuge because he heals the brokenness from the sin in our lives, whether it's sin in the past or our present sin. In, in verses nine through 11, we, uh, we read how... Um, 
the psalmist uh, records for us what it means uh, for God to be our warrior king and our savior. He says in verse nine, he makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us and God of Jacob is our fortress. A lot of times when sin is present in our lives, it destroys our lives even as it provides pleasure. Right? It's a double-edged, it's a double-edged sword. It, it continues to give us pleasure, but it continues to destroy us at the same time. And so oftentimes you find that sin if not addressed, it plagues our own lives, it plagues our marriages, it plagues the way we raise our children, it plagues our calling as believers. And sometimes uh, when there are sins that we've battled for long periods of time, right, or we have baggage that we've brought in uh, to our lives because of other people's sin in our lives, oftentimes it can be a, a source of discouragement. It can, it can destroy the joy that we have in our Lord. It can steal the joy that God has given us. And sometimes even the people around us lose hope in us. Have you, have, I, I'm not sure if you face that. Oftentimes you find yourself, people questioning, is he ever going to change or is she ever going to change? Or is the situation ever going to get better? I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, that we can find refuge from those battles in Jesus. We can find refuge and you can find hope from past baggage, past sins, or even present sin in Jesus. We can find refuge in him. Um, Our warrior king is fighting our battles as you look to him for refuge. As you run to him, he will command those sins, he will command the sickness, he will command your affliction to stop. And that is what he, we see in uh, verse 10 here. He says, be still and know that I'm God. Oftentimes it's, you see that on plaques as if it is to the believer. It actually, if you read the context of it, it's actually referencing the enemy. It's, God is basically telling the enemy, be still, stop, stop, because I am king, you will not defeat me, I am exalted even above you. And that is what uh, the psalmist is reminding us, that God is our warrior king. And before, uh, you know, one of the things that I've heard over the last few weeks, I'm not sure if it's coincidence, is um, sometimes as we we as believers, um, we forget how powerful and how mighty our God is. And so I I love the worship this morning and how it it just uh, reminded us who, who, who is God's equal? Who on earth can claim to be anything even close to God? And um, a lot of times when we forget this, we, we manif- it manifests itself in comments like, I'm not sure God can forgive me, or my sin is too big for God, or I, you don't know what my past looks like. You don't know how much I've been hurt. You don't know how much baggage I have. I, I wanna humbly suggest, as th- through this passage and reading Psalm 46, that if you feel like your sin is too big or your baggage is too deep to be healed, That is not because your sin is too big. It is because your God is too small. It is not the God that the psalmist is painting for us in this passage. The Yahweh that the psalmist describes is able and willing to forgive all your sins and heal your past when we look to him as our refuge. Uh, Paul echoes this, and as Brian and the band uh, comes up um, uh, this morning, I want to finish up by looking at uh, Romans chapter eight, where Paul echoes this specific um, uh, echoes this specific sentiment. 
uh, in Romans 8, and I'll, read, I'll quickly read through a few, pa- a few verses in Romans 8. And if, if, you, um, if you're familiar with Romans 8, Romans 8 is where Paul highlights a few things that are uh, amazing as believers. He says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Uh, who can be against us? And so that's basically what he, uh, he uh, echoes here in this passage. When you come down to uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, we read, um, Paul writes here, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Give us all things, brothers and sisters. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's not only your refuge, but he's, in, he's interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sore? You can add yours to this list. I somehow always end up here in God's love for us. But I, can't, I could not, uh, as I was reminded of this idea of God as refuge from our sins, present and past, I could not uh, help but notice this passage, how Paul reminds us that there is nothing that can separate us from God's love for us. Your baggage is not too big, your sin is not too deep. He's able and willing for us to come to him. And in verse 37, he goes on to say, Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as we, uh, with the psalmist, I want to declare that you are our refuge. You are our only sure refuge. You're not just the rock that we run to, but you are ever-present and ready to help. You are our savior and warrior king, how to fight our battles. You are the God that can nurture and sustain us even as we are obedient to your word. Oftentimes we doubt the benefit of it, but as the psalmist says, help us, help our roots to go deep into your scripture. Let it nourish our souls, let it nourish our minds. Let it influence all aspects of our lives, our parenting, our character, our soul, our church, our mission, our ministries. We pray that we will continue to look to you, even as the psalmist did, in the middle of fear, in the middle of worry, in the middle of a diagnosis that we didn't want to hear, in the middle of rebellious children, in the middle of a job loss. Help us to run to this passage and declare with the psalmist that God is our refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. We pray that uh, this word will bear fruit, will go forth and accomplish what you have sent it out for. We love you and help us to live in the love you have for us. And remember that nothing can separate us from your love, that you hold us in your hands. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.